Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with Abigail Molina, managing attorney of Molina Law Group, regarding uh, an update on all the new immigration policies. Molina Law Group is also our current sponsor for our podcast and our interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be located in Springfield, Oregon, 4660 Main Street is a Highland Business Park, uh, Building B. Uh, their phone number is 541-653-8899. Again, their phone number is 541-653-8899. You can find them on uh, Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. You can find them on their website. And so we're looking forward to having this conversation with Abigail today. And yes, she is my wife. We want to get some updates on the things that are changing so rapidly under the previous administration, presidential administration, we went through a, a very rapid and hard swing on our immigration policy. Now we're a little over 50 days into a new presidential administration, and the pendulum is swinging the opposite direction. So Abigail, first things first, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. What are some of the most important things we need to know right now about what is taking place in our current immigration reform. So before we jump into that, just a quick announcement that you can now find us on TikTok. I'm very proud of that. Very good. We're trying to reach all, all levels of society um, with, with information about immigration reform. And, and we're doing that because, as you said, um, it is a lot. There, there have been a lot of changes. There were so many changes under the Trump administration. Most of them never made it into the news, uh, never made it into general knowledge or circulation. Um, and so we really try hard to get information out onto social media um, in formats that are understandable, ways that people can digest easily um, and don't need a law degree in order to understand. So right now, what are we're seeing all kinds of immediate, dramatic and drastic shifts into areas that were pending, whether it's DACA or issues that are taking place at the border. There's what we know, there's what we think we know, and then there's what's really going on. First, let's talk about what's going on with the hot topic of DACA. Right. So DACA was under attack um, in the Trump administration. Trump actually ended DACA, um, for, refused to accept new applications for a long period of time, several years, um, and was going to wind down any renewals. And so the Supreme Court uh, ruled on that, that that decision was not lawful, um, but that administration still continued to refuse uh, to move forward with DACA. Uh, so uh, since uh, Biden has taken office, DACA is back on. That was actually a change that happened in December before Biden took office because of ongoing uh, litigation. And so the courts ruled that Trump couldn't continue to refuse. So he had to start accepting new applications in December of 2020. Uh, so DACA uh, is fully restored and Biden did announce that, that it, um, it is fully restored and is no longer in danger of being ended. Um, the Biden administration, uh, including, decided that it would um, 
not pursue any further litigation defending um, the ending of DACA. So DACA is back on, and in fact, last night, um, the House uh, voted to uh, on a bill that would provide uh, an expansion of those that are currently eligible for DACA and a pathway to citizenship. So that's the latest with DACA. Now, just so everyone that's listening understands that just because it's passed the House, it has not passed the Senate, so there's still another round of conversations and voting that has to take place around this issue, correct? Correct. And I'm not an expert on this. In fact, I started promoting it as, you know, I knew it wasn't a final, you know, a, a law yet or anything, but I saw it as a big win. And it is a big win. I think we should be uh, happy about that progress. But currently in the Senate, we've got a 50-50 split. And so I felt, you know, confident that it could make it through the Senate. But many of my colleagues are, are fearful, concerned that it will die in the Senate, as most immigration reform bills have in the past 20, 20 years died in the Senate, passed by the House and died in the Senate um, because it, it just gets bogged down um, and they need 60, 60 individuals, senators to proceed to a vote. Uh, so there's significant concern over whether or not they will have those 60 individuals. But if they did get to a vote, I think that it could pass uh, and would pass because of the 50-50 split, and then, uh, of course, Vice President Harris would be that uh, tie-breaking vote. So what are some of the, if this passes, what are some of the positive aspects of this bill or this change that people that are in this, uh, um, this umbrella under DACA, how could this positively impact them? Well, this has been something that's been ongoing for at least since I started in immigration law as a legal assistant in 20, uh, in 2000. So 20 years ago, this has been an ongoing conversation of what what should and, and could be done to um, provide a, a permanent legal status to individuals who were brought here as children. So you're talking about people who did not make a conscious choice at the age of two to uh, enter the U.S. and remain here unlawfully. So it's been um, a topic that has gained traction over the years and has, has frankly held widespread support amongst uh, the citizens in our country because because of the fact that these are not individuals who chose to come here they've been here this is home to them they speak english they've gone to school here um, in order to qualify for daca you can't have had an extensive criminal history so these are not the quote-unquote criminals murderers and rapists that trump said that mexico was sending or other countries were sending to us uh, so this is that's why this program has held widespread support um, in our society. So a pathway to citizenship for those who are dreamers or those who qualify for DACA would mean the world. It would mean no longer fearing that you have that you might be deported because some president decides that he doesn't want to continue the DACA program. I have col colleagues who are attorneys, immigration attorneys, uh, who are, have DACA and had to be afraid for the last four years that they might be deported uh, if DACA ended. So it's, it's just ridiculous to think about deporting such a large group of individuals who've grown up in the U.S. 
um, who've, who've contributed. Many of them were essential frontline workers uh, during the, the, the height of the pandemic. Um, so it's, it's ridiculous to me and hopefully to those who really sit and think about it um, to consider deporting them back to a place where they don't have any memory of, um, many of them don't speak the language even of their, their birth countries. Now, we have a case under the previous administration where many veterans who served honorably in the military, some in combat, some multiple tours of combat, yeah, they were still deported. Does it look like they would have an opportunity? Is there any legislation out there that might allow those individuals uh, to come back and be brought back to America? The the immigration reform package that Biden proposed on his first day of office is very broad. Um, I don't think that we'll ever see all of those provisions come to pass, um, but it did include some provisions for bringing back individuals who were deported under the Trump administration if they met certain um, certain guidelines. So we might see that. I don't know, but that's just it's just a sad situation that so many of those people um, who did serve the country were unjustly deported. So what can we expect, what should we be uh, considering, not expect, what should some of our considerations be now regarding the things that are taking place at the border? Does anyone really know what's going on at the border? Honestly, I've been a, a little bit too overwhelmed to follow what's happening at the border. Um, I've been checking in with colleagues there um, on the border and trying to listen to them and not listening to the media um, because the media does of course, always have their own angle and agenda. Um, and what I'm hearing is that it's not as bad as what the media is portraying it. Um, and that re in reality, it's just returning to pre-COVID um, standards or you know a situation. So um, I'm not super concerned about it. I'm happy to see that, that there's some, been some changes um, along the border as far as humanitarian um, humanitarianly addressing uh, concerns and people who are coming to the country. And I understand that there's need to, to make sure that COVID's not being brought in or whatnot. Um, but I, I believe that there's ways to do that um, while still addressing the, the, the humane hum, humanity um, of those individuals. Now the Movement in immigration courts under the previous administration slowed down to a trickle, not just because of COVID, but because of all the ongoing dramatic changes that were taking place to policy. Does it look like our, you know, let's just say we didn't have COVID that to be concerned about, does it look like cases are going to be able to pick back up and some of those uh, policies are going to be re removed? Immigration reform would be amazing for many reasons, but it would ultimately really impact the backlogs of the immigration courts because it's it's really just a joke at this point. You're talking about five, 10, 15 years sometimes to get from start to finish on a case. Um, I have cases when we moved back from Texas, I started cases in 2016 when we moved back and I'm still not finished with them. And now because of COVID, um, our local court in Portland has been closed for the last year. So even more delays. Um, so I'm hopeful that if there's widespread immigration reform, many of those people facing deportation now would have other options and we'd be able to get some of those cases closed. 
Um, we are starting to see shifts in um, the Department of Homeland Security, how they are prosecuting those cases in immigration court. Uh, so kind of a return to um, more reasonableness, which cases should be prosecuted, which cases should just be closed because um, they're not a threat to our community. They're not doing anything to harm us. Uh, so let's just close those cases. We are starting to see small changes like that that have started happening since Biden took office. What about the um, Muslim ban that was in instituted by the previous administration? What does, is that still active? If not, what does that mean for those that were being affected by it? I believe that that was canceled. Um, I'm like 98% sure that that was canceled. What does that mean then? What does that mean to those who have hopes of having family members who might be Muslim, obviously the case is Muslim, or the assumption uh, that they're Muslim, would they be able to continue forward with either residency or citizenship or student visa, things of that nature? Yeah, so there's no automatic guarantee to any of those things that you just named off. You have to qualify for each and every one of them, including a student visa. For a student visa, you have to show that you have lots of money in the bank or that your family has lots of money in the bank. You're not just going to be able to come here on a student visa if you can't afford to be here. And it's the international student um, tuition, I don't even know how people pay it. It's higher than out-of-state tuition. So. Uh, to answer your question is that it's not an automatic. You have to qualify for it. Family-based immigration, you have to have a family member to qualify through. You have to have meet certain requirements in order to qualify. So, um, but this overarching ban on a certain people group because of concerns that of terrorism or whatnot, I understand that those are legitimate concerns. But there's other ways to address that than just a flat-out ban for everyone. What can, how does that affect policy? We look at those that are individuals uh, seeking support through the immigration law system. And then there's a corporate piece to the immigration law system. I don't think a lot of people know or understand or even realize is in existence. Can you separate those two a little bit and talk about a little bit of those processes? So are you talking about employment-based versus family-based? Okay. Yeah, so there are two basic methods to, or not, there's more than two, I guess. Um, let's say there's three. Let's say there's four. We're going to do immigration one-on-one -on -one here real quick. So you've got family-based cases, obviously through a family member. You've got employment-based cases that are through an employer. Um, and that employer could be a self, uh, you could be self-employment. So that includes like investors um, or, you know, business owners who have a company. Um, and then there's humanitarian-based cases. So people that have been victims of different crimes or have been victims of domestic violence. Um, and then you also have the visa lottery. Some, a lot of people don't know about that. That's not really common knowledge. Um, you can apply for it and if you win, it's like winning the lottery, then you get a green card and you get to come here. So the visa lottery, uh, how long has that been in existence? I, I never really understood what that was. I've only be begun to hear about it briefly the last couple of years. I can't answer that question. I don't. I, I haven't done too many of those applications. I, I have known one person who got it. Um, and then I ended up, I, and I only found out that they got it because I ended up defending that person after some criminal history. And so we had to uh, try to get have that person be able to keep their residency after some criminal history. Um, we did an 
up winning that case, but I can't speak to like uh, how long it's been in existence. But I think it, it makes sense to uh, have some other method. Um, if you feel lucky and you uh, apply enough times, maybe maybe you'll actually win it. I always understood that the the lottery system. I've heard it mentioned many times in the immigration debate was a preference and that you should just enter the lottery and see how many family members you may or not may or may not be able to come or you have this many options for this demographic of of individuals to come uh, let's say you have a thousand applications available for for someone from out of india for the sake of this discussion but you have ten thousand people that want to come and they would all put their name in the lottery for those thousand application and see what happens is that was that is that a correct assumption that's how i understood it when it was explained right and if i remember correctly i think it has to do with um, congress sets the number of visas uh, or you know green cards available for each country and so certain countries have a higher demand they're gonna have more people applying and so those countries aren't going to have a lottery so you're talking about countries that um where there's not so much of a demand there are extra visas of available um, and so they can put those into a lottery so applying for asylum coming to one of the nation's borders whether it's our southern border our northern border or, or the eastern coastline or the western coastline coming looking for asylum or some sort of governmental intervention is that within the Constitution or is it a crime? Seeking asylum, uh, since, you know, I don't know when it started, but since the asylum program took effect, uh, it's been a right, uh, not constitutionally, but by regulation, by law, um, to receive people and whatever process there might be, um, you know, each administration has had their own policies regarding whether people are put into detention, before they have a hearing or if they're released or if um, this latest administration decided that it was somehow a humane decision to put them in refugee camps along the border where they were subject to crime, uh, theft, uh, abduction, rape, murder. Um, and so the policy surrounding it has been different from between, depending on the administration, but it's always been there since they started the asylum. Um, process and I'm not going to remember the, the date exactly, um, but that is a right. Uh, now, whether you qualify for it, that's up for a, a, someone else to decide, either an immigration judge or an asylum officer to decide. And those are legal questions that are complex um, and complicated. You cannot um, just say that this type of case will win and this type won't. Each case is dependent on the facts um, and dependent on the law at that time, which is constantly changing uh, because of case law. So someone has a friend or a family member that wants to seek residency, asylum, or citizenship. I'm not, I mean, I'm not the attorney. I'm, I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert in immigration law. Just so people can understand what's, they meet with an immigration attorney and then what? It depends on what their situation is. So many of our, many of the clients in our office were um, individuals who fled South, Central uh, America and Mexico and presented themselves at the border um, requesting asylum. And so then they were processed and released. 
um, and allowed to join family members here in Oregon or throughout the country. And so, and then later present in, um, in immigration court. And so my job is to hear their stories, uh, advise them of their rights and options. Um, and then if they choose to move forward with our office, begin to prepare their case uh, the best that we can, depending on uh, the current case law, uh, for a, presenting their asylum claim, whether it's before an immigration judge or the asylum office. And um, the complication is, is that, like I said, these cases take so long and case law is constantly changing. We're constantly having to reevaluate a, you know, a case that might maybe would have been a qualifying case when they first came to us. Maybe now it won't. And so, what are what are some ways that we can um, deal with that and and help our clients the best way possible? And what does that look like for employment-based immigration support? So employment-based, I haven't done a lot of, of those, um, and so I can't really speak to that, but there's different options. For example, a student that's been studying here, uh, they can qualify for a one-year, or in some cases for STEM, um, people who've been studying in the STEM um, areas of study, uh, they can qualify for two years. And so once that OPT, optional practical training, ends, then there's options for other professional visas, H-1Bs, um, from there, if um, an employer can show that they, there's a, a, a lack of U.S. or permanent resident um, applicants, then they, that, that individual could possibly qualify for their green card through a long, lengthy, um, difficult process, expensive process, uh, that, to show that, um, that there's been advertising done, recruitment efforts have been made, and that position cannot be filled by anyone but this immigrant and so it's not this whole thing of they steal our jobs um, it's ridiculous because the department of labor has set up so many obstacles for immigrants to come and steal jobs um, at least legally now talking about undocumented workers that's a whole nother topic um, i see that as as based on demand you know as long as there's employers who are willing to uh, employ undocumented workers because they feel that they can take advantage of them or pay them less, um, there's always going to be a supply. Uh, it's just an economics question. For those of us that don't know, and I don't know, let's just say our agricultural community, which is large here in the state of Oregon, at one point it was 85% of our uh, economic driving power. And we do know that we have quite a large force of workers, whether or not they're documented or undocumented, I don't know. But if uh, a local farming company or personal family farm wanted to support their workers and helping them get citizenship in this employment base, they could do that, right? No. <laughs> Is that good enough of an answer? Yeah, well, I don't know. That's why I'm asking because uh, I don't know what the law is. So I'm, I'm a, that's why I'm asking these questions. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question because I think people people assume a lot and they think they know. And same people that say, well, you know, if they want to be here, they should go get in line, do it the right way. And the people that say that, they don't even understand how the right way works. And so your question about, well, these employers that are employing 
um, undocumented workers. I hear from employers all the time that would do anything. They would bend over backwards. They would spend a million dollars if they could um, get help their employees uh, become uh, have legal status. And the the laws currently they don't allow it. So the shorter answer, short answer is no, and the the longer answer probably would, would take too long, too much, more time than we have today. Real quick, let's talk about. Is it possible for undocumented people, individuals, employer, employees, whatever the case is, to register to vote and then vote? <laughs> I don't see how. Um, people say, you know, okay, so in Oregon, if you get a license, you're automatically registered, right? I don't know how that it works exactly. And now that licenses can be given to anyone regardless of um, legal status, I can see that that could be a concern. Uh, but that I'm aware of people, you know, getting registered to vote and actually voting, I haven't seen it. I don't understand where this widespread voter fraud claims, you know, from our last um, election came from. Um, I don't know. That's a different topic. Yeah, well, it's just interesting because it comes up right now that the undocumented workforce that we have here has driver's license. Now they're going to be automatically have the ability to vote, going to automatically be registered to vote. And I, I don't think that's true. I think there's still a lot of safeguards in place. I don't see that as a reality, but it's it's something that's believed and perception is reality, unfortunately. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to pull that up actually because I'm sure that when they changed the law here in Oregon to allow for undocumented individuals to get a license, which to me makes sense, we don't want from a policy standpoint we don't want a bunch of people driving around without licenses because then they're not going to have insurance and then if you get an accident with an uninsured driver, we all know that that's a horrible situation to be in. So it makes sense to give licenses to anyone regardless of status. So I'm sure that part of that process of changing that law here in Oregon. Uh, required that now in order to automatically register someone, there's got to be a, a step in that process of making sure that the person who's getting the license is also a U.S. citizen and authorized to vote. Because you also have, you know, permanent residents applying for licenses and they're not getting registered to vote. So there's got to be some check in that, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody thought about that. And so for the sake of this discussion, can a permanent resident vote? Or do no. you what? No, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Now, there are some people who grew up here and who thought that they were U.S. citizens and maybe they registered to vote and voted or whatever, but um, I just, I don't believe it. I don't believe that there are all these people getting registered somehow and somehow voting. I, I don't believe it. Any other areas around the, the pending policies is a huge shift and a huge swing in the country right now, which is natural when, it, when the pendulum swings so far one direction, it always comes back the other way with equal force. Anything else that you think people should know or be, you know, be aware of regarding all these uh, adaptations to immigration policy? I think that, um, you know, Biden has a lot of big ideas. Uh, I don't know that all of them are going to be accomplished, particularly given the climate. You know, like you're saying, the, the pendulum didn't swing just on its own. Trump didn't get, get elected and do all the changes just because he, you know, he wanted to. Uh, that was based on 
obviously widespread support in our country for those types of uh, anti-immigrant policies and laws. Uh, so it's going to take a long time for the undoing of many of those, um, but I'm already just really glad to see the positive changes that are already being made in, in policy, um, even the, the public charge, and we could talk about that a little bit today if you wanted to. Um, public charge was something that really, to me, showed the heart of the Trump administration regarding immigration. When I say public charge, it was a regulation, so it was a law that was enacted um, during the Trump administration that required all immigrants who were seeking a green card to show that they had uh, lots of money in the bank, good credit, that they could speak English, that they were highly educated, that they um, were healthy and had health insurance, um, and that they were not too old. So automatically you see there the value we want immigrants who are wealthy and speak english and you know can contribute automatically to the to the economy um and just disregarding those immigrants who over and over and over again have saved us in the agricultural sector and in all you know this essential work that that they have done during the pandemic um, just disregarding, disvaluing um, all of all of those immigrants. And so um, there was a lot of pushback against the public charge regulation because it was discriminatory, because it, it um, kept many people from qualifying. And many people chose not to apply even because they didn't want to waste their money for fear that they would be denied because they didn't speak English or because they had some, you know, some bad credit or not enough money in savings or not enough assets. Um, so that we we didn't we knew that that was on the chopping block for Biden. Uh, we didn't know how long that would take because it is a regulation. Uh, there was concern that it would take a long time to undo. Uh, but we did uh, hear finally a, a week or two ago um, that the B Biden administration said that they would no longer defend in court uh, the public charge rule. So that basically meant that the public charge rule was dead. They instructed USCIS to uh, change their policy according. And I, I was happy to see that USCIS automatically, this like the same day or the next day, took the public charge form off their website, uh, changed all of the information on theirs, no longer requiring those effective like March 9th, I think it was or something. Um, or I might be getting that day right. There's been a lot of changes lately. Um, and so super exciting to see that change happen as quickly as it did um, and to see the pendulum going back. Be, and, and hopefully there will be support rising up to support that pendulum shift um, that will make it long-term um, support for immigrants and for long-term immigration reform because that's what's going to be needed moving forward. There's only so much that can be changed by policy, by executive order. The rest of it really needs to go through Congress and get um, on the books. And um, the fear for me during the Trump administration was how far is this pendulum, pendulum going to swing? Is it going to go so far to white supremacy that there's, you know, this nation of immigrants that was founded on immigrants, will there still be a place in the future for immigration and for immigrants? Um, and that was seriously a question for me. Um, you know, you and I have had some personal conversations about whether this country reflects our values currently and, and whether, where we see ourselves long term. And so um, it was encouraging to me to see um, Biden be elected and, and take office and for these changes to be to be made. But there's it's a long road ahead. Now, what does USCIS stand for? That's um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. 
um, it's, that's that's the uh, under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. They ex they are the ones that process all applications for for benefits, so green cards or work permits. Um, they process all those, and it was interesting to see the, the change. Okay, so like I said, Biden announced no more public charge. USCIS followed instructions. Compare that to last summer when the Supreme Court said, uh, "No, Trump, you can't end DACA like that." And USCIS came out maybe a month later saying, no, actually, we're still we're still going to go down this road. We're not going to be accepting DACA. It was just shocking to see uh, the branches of government, not, you know, one branch of government not respecting the, another branch. Uh, it was scary to me, honestly. And so so we all understand that USCIS is a part, the part belongs to the Department of Homeland Security, which belongs to the executive branch of government. Correct. And you also said that public charge was a regulation. Right. What's the difference between a regulation and a law? That would take a long time to explain, but the short answer is that when there are agencies, so like USCIS is an agency, there are rules that govern agencies and those are called regulations. Uh, so it's a law, but it's not like um, a statute um, or you know the Constitution or whatever they they really address more like how how does the and some laws um, some statutes end up getting broken down in into regulations uh, that explain like how does this law actually function and, and what's actually required so then it's a regulation specific to USCIS right okay very good uh, I think we only had about 30 minutes, I think you have another appointment coming up. What else is important to you that you think people should be informed of right now regarding the pending changes in our immigration policy in, our, in Washington? Um, we could talk about TPS, temporary protected status. That was just extended um, or to include Venezuelans, which I think was really a long time coming. Uh, Trump kind of addressed it on his way out, uh, but now it's officially been established as a country that will be offered temporary protected status. That means anyone who's from Venezuela or who lived in Venezuela before coming to the U.S. Um, is eligible for that status. It's a work permit um, that can be renewed. It's an 18-month period initially, and it usually ends up getting um, extended indefinitely. I think that's a big deal. So I just want to make sure I understand what TPS or temporary protective status means is that if they're coming here, those that qualify for TPS, temporary protective status, they're automatically given a green card so they can work and go about building a life here? So a green card is different. Green card is permanent residency. So a work permit is what they would be eligible for. It's a temporary status. It's um, not a permanent status, but it could potentially be used for future um, to be to um, get uh, legal status like for example one of the pending legislation in congress right now is that anyone with tps would be automatically um, eligible for permanent resident status so uh so no it's it's not a green card it's a it's a work permit it's not automatic it's something that has to be filed there's a filing fee so um there's documents that have to be submitted there's a process they have to be fingerprinted um, they're then going to be in the system. So if TPS ends, which uh, Trump tried to end TPS um, during his administration too, I keep 
there's so many changes. Like, how do you even stay on top of how many changes there were? But he tried to end it. Uh, he announced he was ending it, um, which sent another large group of people into a tailspin of like, what are we supposed to do now? How, how do we just return to this country, a country that we haven't been to in 20 years? Um, so it's not, you know, it's not permanent, it's temporary. And, but hopefully it will be uh, extended and continued in the future because Venezuela right now is, is not, not looking good. It's not great. And so I think that's important what you said regarding they have to be fingerprinted. There's an accountability process. There's documents. Uh, they're not, someone is not showing up and saying, hey, I'm from Venezuela. And mm -hmm. someone's saying, oh, okay, well, come on. There's no, we don't have any concerns. And sometimes I believe that process is deliberately misrepresented on, on how people are being allowed to participate in this country. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's bureaucracy. It's the government, um, but it's for a reason. And, you know, there's through throughout time, throughout the, my experience in immigration law, I've seen a lot of changes that have addressed, put, you know, re, potential abuse of the system, potential fraud. So there's lots of checks and balances in place. And, you know, I'm sure that people slip through the cracks or whatever, but eventually they're, you know, they're going to get found out and probably get deported for that. And they're going to have to live with that hanging over their heads for the rest of their life. So it's never a good idea to commit fraud. It always comes back to you. Anything, any other final comments you'd like to make, Abigail? I don't think so. Thanks for having me on. And um, we encourage anybody to reach out. If you, you know, this may not apply to you, but it's, it's great that you're listening to this. I encourage, I, I applaud you for listening to this. Anyone who's made it through the, the to the end of this, it's complicated stuff. It's confusing stuff. There's, um, there's a lot of rhetoric around immigration right now. There's a lot of, um, you know, conflicting views about it. And I try to be respectful of that, but I feel like there's a lot of white people that just feel like this land is our land. And this land is not your land. Uh, you know that song, this land is our land. Is that, uh, you know, this land does not belong to white people. I hate to break it to all the white people out there, but this is not our land. We, we, we came here. Um, that's great. We came here or whatever, but um, lots of other people were here before us. And lots of other people are coming here with a right to come here. And I love to see the diversity of our, our country. And I hope that that continues. I would hate to see it end up being a, an island of white people. Um, I would just hate that. All right, very good. So first of all, we get, again want to recognize and thank our sponsor, Molina Law Group, located in Springfield, Oregon, 4660 Main Street, Highland Business Park. You can find them on Instagram. Facebook, TikTok, uh, their office number is five. Twitter, we're on Twitter too. That's right, there's a new <laughs> one, Twitter, growing every day. Uh, their office phone number, 541-653-889. Again, 541-653-889. If you have any immigration questions, you have friends or family, loved ones, community members that need uh, some questions answered, reach out and give them a call. And soon you'll be able to find Molina Law Group in Beaverton. They'll be having an office opening up in Beaverton very soon as well. Abigail, thank you for your participation. Thank you for the update. And as things unfold in our immigration policy, we look forward to having more conversations with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.